0: I'm so happy to see you, Stephen. Yeah, same here. I've been taking uh, our last conversation and your suggestions really far. Great. Wow. Great, great stuff.
1: Good, good to hear.
0: On the path, we'll talk again some another time. Yep. Don't want to involve the children because it'll just yeah. be yeah. over their head, you know, when the grownups get together and hang out.
2: That, that's right. It's just, you know... <laughs> Uh an, an earthbound individual like myself, of course, over here, right? With with no real no real interest in these topics. now I'm joking entirely, of course. Just try to play up what my dad was besmirching me with earlier. Just say just say dad.
1: I have access to Wikipedia like everybody else.
2: <laughs> <laughs> There's a lot of truth to <laughs> that one. There's that is where a fair amount of my knowledge base resides, admittedly. <laughs> so okay. Um this has already been a lot of fun. I'm I'm sure, we'll have a great time with it.
0: I've been recording it all. We could drop it in as Oh, you know, oh
2: great. Fantastic. B roll, smack talk.
1: <laughs> Jeez. That's right. We'll get your blooper reel out. <laughs> <laughs> okay.
2: Hello and welcome to Being Well. I'm Forrest Hanson. If you're new to the podcast, this is where we explore the practical science of lasting well being. And if you've listened before, welcome back. I'm joined today, as usual, by Dr. Rick Hansen. So, Dad, how are you doing today?
0: I'm doing really well. And before we turn on the recording, we were doing some spiritual smacking of each other, which I really like, a little spiritual (laughs) smack off. (laughs) And maybe our guest here will help to both referee you and me and, and also join in a little bit when we get going.
2: Yes, so today we have the absolute pleasure of welcoming Stephen Snyder to the show. Stephen is a senior meditation teacher who has been practicing meditation since about 1976, so that's significantly before I was born. He's the author of three books, including Buddha's Heart, which was published last year. He's also a lawyer by trade and has practiced law on behalf of a number of Zen masters and Buddhist organizations. So Stephen, thanks so much for joining us today. How are you doing?
1: I'm doing well. It's really nice to be here with you and Rick Forrest.
2: Yeah, it's great to have you here. And I'm really looking forward to doing this. You have such an interesting intersection, as I was just learning more about you, of personal practice while also living in the world in very practical ways. So I'd like to start by kind of introducing you to people. You've been a Buddhist practitioner for a long time, and I would just love to know, how did you get started with Zen? And what is your practice focusing on these days?
1: Well, I started with Zen. I was 19, so 1976. I think there was the normal teenage angst, the uh, just who am I, how do I fit into the world, those kinds of questions. And also there was a sense of my life felt like a lot of suffering. Like I really didn't know how to navigate life. And every time I tried to move in a direction with relationship or work, there were lots of problems, lots of mistakes I was making. And so I decided to look into Buddhism. And so I uh, got some materials some books on Buddhism. There weren't very many in English in those days. But I found uh, a couple that, particularly the Three Pillars of Zen, that had instructions on how to meditate. And so I began by counting my breath. And I could only sit for about five minutes, but I knew from the first sitting, something felt like my grounding wire got attached. So I felt this sense of, okay, here I am. And it just started from there. I just never stopped. I stayed in the Zen tradition for about 20 years, doing lots of retreats, working with different Zen masters and different styles of Zen. And I found at the end of that 20 years, there were sort of some shifts happening in the Zen world. There were some teachers being called out on some of the behavior that was causing problems. And at the same time, I really had this question arise in me, what did the Buddha practice? a lot of teachers would tell you what the Buddha said, what the Buddha you know, did, but what, what exactly was he practicing? And that led me to reading some of the suttas, the Buddha's sermons. And I found this word jhana mentioned all the time, didn't know what it was, and later found out that it was a type of transcendent experience that comes from concentration meditation. And so that led me to practice with a teacher from Burma, the Venerable Paul Sayadaw, and completed the this portion of Buddhism that's called Samatha, which is the concentration side, which included this jhana stuff. And he, a couple of years later, authorized me to teach, and I wrote a book, or co-wrote a book on practicing the jhanas, and intermixed in there throughout this 40-some years. I, I've also practiced in the Tibetan tradition uh, with some non-dual Western teachers and some others. So I've kind of had the usual ecumenical exposure the way most westerners have today.
0: In all that, how did what you've been practicing and what you've been learning over the last really 40 years address that sense of suffering and tumult and disquiet you spoke of when you were younger?
1: Well, I think the the disquiet began to be satisfied as I meditated because I felt like I was plugging into something that was bigger than me. And there was a way I had a recognition about that. I didn't know so much at the start. But later on, there were a variety of experiences, too, where I got to see more into the nature of the universe or my own nature in a way that gave me some comfort, some grounding. So that was part of the process with the Zen tradition. And I think the other aspect was Zen tradition in particular. I mean, all Buddhism practices this way, but Zen stresses it, is really practicing with your suffering. So a lot of the meditation retreats, the sashin, are very intense. You sit a lot. There's a lot of commotion. In those days, there was often someone patrolling the meditation hall with a stick. And if you looked like you were falling asleep or slouching, you got a little smack from the stick. It added a certain amount of energy to the the retreats, (laughs) but I think what I learned also was just how to sit still and be with and find peace despite really immense physical suffering.
0: For those maybe who are not so familiar with the history of Buddhism, just as a bit of a context, the Buddha lived and taught around 2,500 years ago. His teachings were handed down orally for several centuries before a written record survived. Those are the Buddha suttas you're referring to, the original teachings. And then as Buddhism evolved, kind of like a tree growing some major branches from a single trunk and deep roots through its Tibetan phase, and then moving into China with Chan and then into Japan with Zen, and then now coming to the West, you're talking about certain elements that were baked into the original teachings, including in the one of the eight elements of the Eightfold Path, right concentration, which consists of these four jhanas that you know about. And a fair amount of that material was sort of somewhat left behind somehow, I think. And you're talking about reclaiming some of those original teachings related to concentration and non-ordinary states of consciousness and very specific step-by-step experiential trainings in them when you spoke of your return, as it were, and engagement with the, the Burmese teachings of Paul Xayadau. And so I'm just kind of wondering, with that historical context, what you found valuable and important in these original teachings and the lineage now of training, in those practices of deep meditative absorption, deep states of concentration?
1: Well, let's say first that that I, w- I want to make sure to emphasize that I really got a lot of value out of my Zen years. Yeah. I think the other component it added psychologically for me was I really didn't have a father figure growing up. And so I think something about the harshness and the the sort of firm rules of Zen really allowed me to sort of integrate and learn self discipline and also the way young men need to do to butt their head against the, you know, to ram the horns with the older ram. There's a way I think it afforded me that. So I think there was also a maturing mm. that took place through those years as well.
0: Sure. And I want to say as well in my own practice, I'm turning towards Zen actually <laughs> in a lot of ways and really appreciating a lot of the tremendous profundity there. Okay. So keep going.
1: And then, uh, but I would say by Zen years, learning to meditate, there was a lot of instruction around the physical posture of meditation, and there was almost nothing spoken about about the inner content of meditation. Mm, mm -hmm. And the idea was they didn't want to give you too many ideas, and they didn't want to have you then, let's say, lean into, if not fabricate experiences based on what you were told the inner experience could or would be. So, but the problem was I came to see myself like a hot air balloon pilot. I could get the balloon in the air, but I never knew any, I never had any idea where it was going to go <laughs> or how I was going to land. Where where with the Theravadan, which you're talking about, is the practicing that the Buddha did, they call it the the elders, the practice of the elders, there's really a, a lot of a systematic approach, very detailed. Approach to meditation, specific meditations. So I, I came to feel as though I got to be like a a fighter pilot. I got to know all the buttons and doodads in the cockpit, and I learned how to operate all these things. And I can a
0: very peaceful airplane, <laughs> yes. a very peaceful, very, very quiet, very quiet, <laughs> zooming along in Mach seventeen. <laughs> that's right. Okay, that's right.
1: So it's kind of a the, you know the, the the fighter the fighter plane uh combined with the transporter from Star Trek. So you combine those two, then you're you're approaching they're approaching the truth.
2: We're really mixing our metaphors here. I'm I'm enjoying it. This is good stuff. Moving topics a little bit here, I do want to ask you about your sort of worldly practice alongside all of your contemplative history, because you have training as a lawyer and you worked as a lawyer providing legal services to a variety of different contemplative organizations, Zen organizations and otherwise Was there anything that you kind of learned from that experience, whether it be how you integrate your practice contemplatively with existing in the world, or just like seeing the behavior of these organizations outside of that contemplative framework?
1: Yeah, well, a couple things. One, I got to see that people are people. Yeah. So I got to see that the the Zen teachers and Zen masters, when their teenager had a car accident and their insurance was going up, Mm -hmm. they weren't happy about that.
0: When I think about being a an attorney, a lawyer, my mom wanted me to go to law school, and I think I would have been a good lawyer, and I'm very glad I didn't become one, And because as I put it, perhaps mistakenly, I did not want to fight for a living. I did not want to quarrel for a living, and it seems to me that in a civil society, we we need lawyers, and I really appreciate lawyers in terms of the ways in which they they manage conflict, but it's about conflict much of the time, and I wonder how one might put together a personal practice that's quite centered in qualities of compassion and and respect for others and you know regulating one's own aggressive impulses how do you put that together with being a very effective lawyer when you do need to go to war in some ways against another party and prevail on behalf of your own client
1: yeah yeah that's a good question rick I'd say when I started, I, I was a practitioner before I was a lawyer, mm-hmm. and I think initially I really tried to keep them separate. I had this idea that if I allowed my spiritual practice to come in too much into function as a lawyer, that basically people would be taking advantage of me. You know, they'd be taking my lunch money. Yeah. So I really kept it separate, and I just thought this was the way to do it, and this was the most professional way. And I think for those years, it probably was true. But as time went on, probably 10 years into being a lawyer, I really wasn't happy with the work I was doing. And so I really began examining. And I got to see that I was keeping this artificial separation, even though the last time I practiced law, which had been several years ago, I didn't announce to everybody I was Buddhist when I arrived at whatever the function was. So it wasn't wasn't like that. But I didn't hide it. I think that was the difference. And I didn't keep this artificial line within myself of, am I lawyering or am I, you know, being a spiritual person or contemplative? And once I began really removing that line that I kept, I found that I, I was enjoying myself more. I was being much more authentic in my interactions with people and my clients liked me better. I was getting more work. Hmm. So it was an interesting idea when I became more authentic then people resonated with that. So, I felt like i I maintained the balance in the ethics of both worlds in that way.
0: yeah, I think this is one of the most important and challenging areas of relationships in general. Forrest and I've written about it in book Resilient it's how to when it's appropriate, be a strong advocate, even with a certain amount of heat, perhaps, but to be a strong advocate for the good as you see it without Letting rancor, resentment, ill will, hatred, and so forth invade your heart. How to do both. How to bring love and power together, in effect. And I can see that your own training and background meditatively helped you there. I got to ask you this other question because you alluded to scandals of various kinds or Call outs for bad behavior in spiritual circles. That's been a real issue in all kinds of traditions, many, many, many traditions. I don't think there's any tradition or any secular environment in which people, typically men in positions of power, have acted badly. How do you put that together with a high level of realization? I mean, there there are teachers who it's almost like when they turn on one channel, you are getting pipelined into the source. And then click, they turn another channel. Maybe they think the microphone's off and or the door's closed or they're with a young female student and something else entirely is happening there. So if realization is real, why would it not entirely pervade the character of a person, the personality altogether, including morally?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. A very important topic. And I think at, particularly at the time when I was in the Zen world and even to this day, a lot of people hold the idea, they hold the model that when there's an awakening, everything gets awakened. Yeah. So as you say, when the when the light switch goes from off to on, the whole room is illuminated. And unfortunately, well, it's a great theory. And unfortunately, in my experience, uh, both personally and witnessing others, it doesn't actually work that way. What happens is there, there is a realization, there is a suspension of the self-identity. Some of the various core survival instincts we have get suspended for a period of time. And so in Buddha's language, we would say that the absence of a self in some profound way is experienced and understood as that's the original nature or the ground, ground being nature. But then the personality material comes back. And typically with realization, it highlights whatever is not in accord with the realization. And that gives you a clear idea on what you need to work with as a a layperson in the world. And then that goes on to where then next time you are open to transcendent experience, there's an ability to accordion further into new territory because there's less personality dysfunction limiting that expansion. So with these teachers, they're and I knew a number of them where they had absolutely very profound experiences of emptiness, of a lack of a self. But the problem was they believed that it it was all-encompassing. They believed they were completely enlightened. And also, we as students knew so little about it and were around so few people that somebody with a little bit of awakening, we did treat like they were a living Buddha, And so literally everything they did, we thought was enlightened. So if they, if your teacher smacked you, Mm -hmm. you know, Mm -hmm. and said, you're an idiot, you would take that as, well, they're enlightened. What are they seeing? You know, it's all my issue was the way it was done. And this is the old saying, you know, power corrupts and absolute power corrupts. Absolutely. And that's what happened was they weren't checked. There were no checks and balances. And a lot of them didn't maintain their own teachers, meaning that the teacher was not under a teacher. So in that way, nobody was supervising, and that's what led to a lot of the behavior. So you had it monetarily and sexually for the most part. Those were the big big areas.
2: I would love to ask you more about this, Stephen, and particularly two kind of phrases that you used a second ago. The first is this idea of personality material, how you were talking about, okay, the personality material reemerges, or the ego, if you want to refer to it that way emerges alongside the realization. And Could you just talk a little bit more about what you mean by personality material distinct from some kind of awakening or transcendence or however else you want to talk about that?
1: Sure. Well, we all have a personality that's been structured based upon life. Some of it's DNA, some of it's environmental. But the fact is we have all these likes and dislikes and we have these ways of behaving that are habituated based on circumstance. Yeah, of course. And until we work on those, meaning, you know, we all project to a certain extent, mother and father on other people and maybe siblings or who knows who. But the point is we're often relating to other people, not in an authentic way, but they remind us of somebody. Mm-hmm. So there's a certain way it's investing, you know, our history and both people are doing it. There's a way you don't quite have a clear communication. So it's just that kind of structuring, the normal psychological structuring we all go through. And of course, there is a uniqueness not only in our personality, but even in our awake state, we're all have a profound uniqueness. So when people can live from complete awakening, there's still a way they're very different, they're very unique, but they're very authentic.
0: We're drawing a contrast that you've alluded to between sort of the ordinary self, the sense of... I'm a Rick, you're a Stephen. there's a forest over there, and that to essentialize it and reify it further, there's a kind of entity inside each one of us. This is the conventional sense, right, of the I inside us, the me, the, you know, agent of actions and owner of experiences. Okay. In contrasting to that, you've also spoken of experiences in which that sense of self fades if not radically, rapidly falls away. And something, something is there. Something remains. There's not a, when it falls away, we don't just die. We don't just go unconscious. Something remains. And can you speak to that, your sense of that or how you talk about it? I know you've had very deep experiences of this. Help us understand this.
1: Well, in Buddhism, if we say there was a goal then the goal would be nibbana or nirvana. And that's talked about in lots of different ways, but fundamentally it's the power of it and the source quality of it is that it's an experience of cessation, cessation of consciousness, cessation of all types of body identification, so really a cessation of all materiality and mentality. So that goes away. And also consciousness, so there's no awareness in the real heart of the, the eye of the hurricane, we might say. There's complete stillness. But coming out of that, there's the potentiality for all manifestation, all form, all concept, all of that is there. And then it starts moving into concept, it moves into space, it moves into a variety of other qualities, and ultimately into form, which is where we are. So there's a direct relationship. And all this is happening right now. So this isn't an abstract. This is the way we're actually structured. It's just we've forgotten in part and also we've been socially reinforced to believe you're a Rick and I'm a Stephen, rather than really we're that and we're neither. So you know it's it's this coexisting that happens. And part of it is perception. We just don't perceive that that's the actual case, that we actually are completely in touch with the entire source of this whole business, You know, the source of the universe. We're in touch with that and we're made up of that. We lose track of that. And that's what practice does, is it, it both softens us and also, for a metaphor, it's like we have this greenhouse we live in and one day we start cleaning the window panes, these dirty panes. And at some point, we, re- we realize something's cleaning from the outside, too. And more and more, these panes get clear. And all of a sudden, there's this immense bright light. And we learn that it's both coming from the inside and the outside simultaneously. And then once it's clear and it's shining through both ways, does the greenhouse actually even exist? You know, that becomes the question. So that's really the function of spiritual work and being lay people. We also have to put it into practice in terms of how we live our lives, how we relate to others, you know, how we conduct ourselves. So it's functioning from that. Where the monastics still have to do some of this, but they get room and board afforded to them. They don't have to go out and look for work. There's no spouse they have to deal with or children. So there's a way that they take out a lot of the stressors of social living. And I'm not saying it's a preferred lifestyle, but saying just as a contrast. The different world. So lay people, as you know, we've got a lot more
2: that we've got to engage at the same time. I do want to ask you about that, Stephen. To put it as simply as I can, and this might seem inherently obvious to people, I don't know, for a non-monastic, what's the value of doing this kind of work? And I use a loaded term there, deliberately, value. What is the benefit that people derive from it? What is the change in experience that they have? Because inside of a very broad framework, of course, this is just like a profound example or a profound realization of the self. You could maybe think about it that way, or a profound realization of the not-self, if you want to think about it that way. But what has your experience been as you've come closer and closer into contact with this sensation over time? And then maybe alongside that, what have you done to maintain that experience in the course of living a normal life?
1: A lot of good questions there. Yeah,
2: there's a lot there.
1: Well, the first thing I'd say, Forrest, is there's a lot of us who are really born with the flame for truth, and there's nothing that we can really do about it, other than we have to respond to it. It's just a a kind of inner compulsion that we can fool ourselves at times into just being distracted, but fundamentally, we're committed to this in whatever way it shows up. And, and I include every religion and spiritual practice in this. I'm not saying one has to feel a call and Buddhism's the only, the only answer. It's not. There are many paths up the mountain and they're all valid. So saying that. But I would say for me, it's really the initial question was when I started practicing was I wanted to not suffer. I wanted to not have angst. I wanted to not misunderstand and be clumsy. And I wrote up a list when I first started, and I wanted to be in bliss all the time. That was another condition I wanted, which um, I can't say that's true, but I think there can be a kind of satisfied place, a contented place we can be and abide. And I say once you start on the path, if if you have, if there's a sufficient flame, then really the only way that flame will find its match is really by doing what I would call serious practice, meaning retreats, practicing daily, really making it the forefront of how you live your life. And I think it also makes a difference to us in terms of how we impact other people and also what's going to happen when we die. Mm. So it all ties together in that way. So I, I think the value is how do we live authentically? And for some of us, it it just mandates we must be in a spiritual practice, we must have that a part of our life somehow.
2: So alongside that, just to kind of get back to what I was saying a second ago, but how do you maintain your contact with that as you go through your normal life? Is there a practice that you keep rolling in the background of your awareness as you're moving through the normal things that you're doing? Is it something that you find yourself falling out of and then you have to return to? How do you engage with that?
1: Yeah, that's a good question. I'd say that all, all the above. There's times when I have done things like carried a pocket timer that I would set for a random time, like 13 minutes. So it would buzz once or vibrate once every 13 minutes. And that was a way I would remind myself to stay with a certain practice or a certain breathing or a certain something. So there's, I think there's ways we can do it. And also it's maintaining meditation daily. Even though technically speaking, meditation does not lead to realization, it's sort of like being a farmer. If the soil is well cared for and plowed and fertilized, you've got a much better chance of growing something than if it's not. So there is a relationship. But I think the other question that you're asking has to do with identity. And when we start, we really have a normal identity. There's, I'm this personality, I'm this certain being, I've got this certain thought pattern. I have a certain history and emotion content and that changes Mm. as we have deeper experiences. And really the best example, best metaphor is really the, the ocean and the waves. You know, we're all waves on this ocean. And for a long time, we think we're completely independent of every other wave and the ocean itself. That I'm this particular wave and I look like this and I move like this. And over time with experiences we call transcendent experiences, we start touching into the ocean. And there can come a time when we have a realization that not only are we the ocean, but more importantly, the ocean is us. And the ocean is every other wave. So really, when I look at you, I don't see necessarily another person. I see ocean manifesting as forest. Hmm. And so that can become in place of the self-identity is the really the identity of true reality.
2: We'll be right back to the show in just a minute, but first a word from this week's sponsors. Terms like the microbiome have gone mainstream, and it's great that there's more awareness about the importance of gut health and how we can support it by taking a good probiotic. Not all probiotics are created equal, and that's why I'm happy to be partnering with Seed. Seed is proud to be backed by science, lots of science. They collaborated with leading scientists to create their DS01 Daily Symbiotic. It's a broad-spectrum, two-in-one, probiotic and prebiotic that includes a proprietary formula of 24 clinically and scientifically studied strains. I take DS01 daily in the morning, and as a guy who has taken a lot of probiotics in his life, one of the things I really appreciated about it is it doesn't have that weird probiotic taste. Trust your gut with Seed's DS01 Daily Symbiotic. Go to seed.com slash beingwell and use code 25beingwell to get 25% off your first month. That's 25% off your first month of Seed's DS01 Daily Symbiotic at seed.com slash beingwell, code 25beingwell. Work often means hours a day sitting in a chair, and research has suggested that prolonged sitting poses all kinds of health risks. One of the best purchases I've made over the last few years is getting a standing desk. It's absolutely transformed my workday, I totally love it, and I got mine from Uplift Desk. So when Uplift reached out recently to sponsor the podcast, I was totally thrilled. If you'd like to try one out, visit upliftdesk.com beingwell for 5% off your order. It's really a great product. I use the V2 two-leg configuration for my desk. That's where I work every day and record the podcast from, but they have so many different options for people. Over a million customers have chosen Uplift Desk for their innovative product designs, free 30-day returns, which includes free return shipping, and a 15-year warranty. Their pricing is also really competitive, and if you're trying to save some money, you can just buy the legs alone. Go to upliftdesk.com slash well for 5% off your order. That's up, L-I-F-T, desk.com slash beingwell. This episode is brought to you by IQ Bar. I'm always looking for ways to get more protein and particularly more healthy protein into my diet, and IQ Bar has been a really good fit for me. Start each day right with IQ Bar's brain and body boosting bars, hydration mixes, and mushroom coffees. And today, our listeners get an exclusive offer of 20% off plus free shipping. Just text "Being Well" to 64000. One of the reasons that the bars have been so great for me is because they're entirely free from gluten, dairy, soy, and artificial sweeteners. And you can refuel smarter with IQ Bar's ultimate sampler pack. That's seven IQ bars, four IQ mix sticks, and four IQ Joe sticks. And now our special podcast listeners get 20% off all IQ bar products, plus you can get free shipping as well. To get your 20% off, just text being well to 64,000. Get your discount. Text being well to 64,000. That's B E I N G W E L L to 64,000. Message and data rates may apply. See terms for details. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. What would you do if you had an extra hour in your day? We're all looking for more time, but time for what? It's easy to waste time doing the things that don't really matter, and it can sometimes feel like we never have time for what does. Learning what we really value, and making it a priority in our lives, is something therapy can help us with. As you probably already know, I'm a huge believer in the power of therapy— and working with a therapist has made a huge difference in my life. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist, and you can switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp.com help, slash being well. So you perfectly cued me into the next thing I wanted to ask you about. We receive questions often on the podcast about the nature of the self. Because from a psychological background, there's a lot of frameworking of selfing, whether it be sort of a Jungian perspective or a Freudian perspective or whatever else. And then alongside that, we have episodes and conversations like this one, which are focused on more contemplative content that are about not self, to put it simply. And we'll get questions sometimes about like, well, is there a self or isn't there? Because on these podcasts, you say there is, and on these other ones, you say there isn't. And I think that what that kind of reveals to me, and I would love your input on it, is this concern or fear instability around changing identity and people's concerns around like, what am I if I am not me? Mm -hmm. What am I if I am not forest? What am I if I am the wave instead? What am I if I am the ocean? Right. And that can be really destabilizing for people to begin to engage with these questions of like, what if what I think of as this very individuated thing is just a set of conditioned responses moving through the world? Was this a challenging question for you to engage with? And what was your own process around it?
1: Well, I, I think it's a good question. And I think it's a question that every dedicated practitioner contemplative contemplates. And I think everyone carries their own level of concern and fear. Because whatever whatever your particular fear, my particular fear is around that. And really, one of the most fundamental fears that we carry as humans is a fear of extinction. And this becomes an important question as we approach transcendent experience, because that at some point kicks up. And whatever strategies we use to assuage ourselves and comfort ourselves that, in fact, I'm not going to lose me, I matter, I'm important, I'm this thing, I'm real. There's all these kinds of ways we reify that personality. But the good news is that we all ripen in contemplative practice on our own. And as we ripen, We get more and more accustomed to the idea and the understanding at some point in ripening that the fruit has to separate from the tree and it's going to fall to the ground. And so, when that time comes, hopefully one is ripe enough to know this is not only going to happen, but it's actually preferred Mm. to really have that cut be made and really be basically go back to nature in a sense, you know, become organically composted back into the soil. So, that's sort of the dynamic. But luckily, we we get more acclimated. So in terms of teaching people, leading retreats, one of the things I try and do is I try to recognize and validate their experiences. So I can say, Forrest, this is the experience you've just had. Mm. You don't need to believe anyone else ever about this because you know it's true for you in your direct experience. So in this way, it doesn't create people who are dependent, who need the teacher, to constantly validate, it becomes a self-validating process. And also, we realize each step is safe, so the eventual time when we have to let go of some of the most important aspects of who we are, that we can let go in the right
0: time. Yeah, a distinction that has been really helpful for me is between the person and the quote-unquote self. And Persons clearly exist, you know, a particular body-mind process unfolding over time, you know, a particular wave, distinct from other waves, that has its time, it appears, it carries forward, and then eventually it disperses. And as social animals, uh, persons have worth and dignity, they have rights and responsibilities. And paradoxically, taking appropriately good care of oneself as a person actually Helps to undo the ongoing problematic constructing of the quote unquote self, a sense of being isolated and beleaguered and needing to protect and glorify this particular presumed construction. And one thing that becomes, I think, really useful when we think about self, not self, as Forrest said earlier, selfing and not selfing. And as the constructive fabricating process of the manufacturers, that sense of self slowly, 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 slowly subsides. As you know better than I do, Stephen, I I regard you, and I'm quite happy to say it here, as someone who's considerably farther along than I am in practice. And I think that's helpful just simply to recognize that about people in a straightforward way. And these are people we can learn from. So I'm saying things that you're familiar with as best I can. So as this active constructing of self falls away, what becomes more and more evident is what's there without that constructing and that constructing has qualities of suffering baked into it it's contracted it's tense it's dualistic it's isolated it's uncertain it's uneasy it's hungry for narcissistic supplies and there's a lot of relief as that ongoing active dynamic process of constructing bit by bit molecule by molecule you know synapse by synapse gradually gradually falls away so In that context, then, I kind of wondered if you could speak more directly to what do you like about who you've become? (laughs) I mean, you've invested in this deeply. You've suffered a lot of knee and back pain over the years (laughs) before you (laughs) saw the light or something. And you have a wife, you have a home, you know, you live in the real world. What have you liked about doing this practice? Why has it been really, really important for you?
1: Well, I I appreciate very much your question and also your prefacing the question, because I think that's important to understand that we are we are still people in every respect. There isn't a perfection like we're we're never gonna leave a ripple when we walk through the water. It isn't quite like that. But I think there's this kind of satisfaction both in homing into authenticity, and the more authentic we can be either in realization, but to me, more importantly, in embodiment and functioning, the more we feel like we're really where we belong. I'm in the right seat. I'm in the right place. And it becomes really, you know, the social fabric becomes where you end up working with other people. But I think there's something that with the establishment of the self, there's a way that when we're born, you know, some of the, the Margaret Mead material, That the dual unity, there's the infants have a connection with the source when they're born. They haven't differentiated into an independent person yet. And that happens over the first few years. And in my experience of working with people and with my own experience, there's a lot of people that remember that. They remember the connection they had, and they remember the pain of turning away Mm. and having to invest in the birth family really for survival. On every level. But ultimately, all of us that are on the contemplative path, we remember enough that we want to return home. That's the orientation. And so ultimately, we want to do that. And the self is the substitute for that kind of connection. And because it's inadequate, that's part of what gives rise to some of the narcissistic behavior, some of the grandiosity. And I think for people like myself who didn't have Really good connection with parents. There's an even larger grandiosity to deal with. There's a bigger, seemingly hole to fill in. But as one gets deeper and deeper, you know, closer to home, closer to our true self, then there's a kind of relaxing and opening that happens, and it starts becoming the new ground, where that becomes, you know, when you when you self-reference, that's what gets self-referenced rather than the personality structuring and the habits of self, as you say. But it's a a long process and it's also one, again, a ripening process. So there's not necessarily a way to say, this is going to happen for you tomorrow and this is the practice. If you do this, here's the guaranteed results. It doesn't quite work as neatly as that. We're a little more organic in making a spiritual stew than that.
0: Yeah, I think of a word a friend of mine, Michael Taft, has used about Realization of relief or great peace. You know, it's a word you've used often a sense of peace, a sense of love. In a moment, we're going to talk about your latest book, Buddhist Heart, which really emphasizes these qualities of the heart because these topics, you don't have a sense of what we're talking about. They can seem sort of abstract and weird. But I, I really like the way you describe it that in a funny kind of way, the construction of self is like a necessary, you know, intermediate stage. But as it gradually starts to fall away, this continually constructed, fabricated sense of I, as it starts to really fall away, and we drop more into just sort of personing, rested in an underlying reality of being, ongoing being that's expressing itself locally as us, Oof, so much stress starts to diminish, so much taking things personally starts falling away. And what remains is this you know beautiful quality of our true home kind of shining through us and at least that's that's how i would myself talk about it and even locally you know i speak quite personally becoming less of a jerk <laughs> with yeah. my wife and son and daughter and neighbors and whoever else is in my <laughs> gravitational right. field at the moment <laughs> Anyway, so you said something I, m- I must ask uh, about as a meditator myself, and there are probably others who are listening. You said something startling to me that meditation per se will not bring you to realization or self transcendence. Maybe briefly, what did you mean by that? And if so, why meditate? Yeah, good questions.
1: Well, we have to come from the understanding that the qualities of realization are ever present meaning they're unborn they don't die they're always available so that's where meditation is a doing and by doing we have an idea that we're getting somewhere or we want to get somewhere and in fact we we do benefit we get better in lots of ways we get more stable we get more in touch with our heart we get more accessible to other people so there's a lot of good that can come of it but If you look at it, the the meditation doesn't produce the result, doesn't produce the realization. The realization happens really in a kind of ripening and just serendipitous event in a lot of ways. But if we treat, to me, the more we treat our life as our work area, meaning if you want to know what issues in your life you need to work on, watch your life. Because that issue is going to come up repeatedly And more intensely, until you recognize it, that it needs to be addressed in some fashion. And you need to explore and understand. And this is where things like therapy can be really helpful, to really become a better functioning ego, because we need to be well-functioned and established in order to transcend. If the ego is not developed enough or is damaged enough, then transcendence becomes very difficult to stabilize. So that's why I talk about it in that way, that, again, meditation helps a lot, but it doesn't produce the realization because the realization's already here. Mm.
0: Claire, thank you. And reassuring that, you know, we don't have to scratch and claw to become something we're not, yet we simply, in effect, come home to who we always already were Right. or to what has always already been the case.
1: Right. Yeah, and so a lot of it's the recognition of that and the willingness, because there's a lot of resistance, because we have this fear. You feel, you know, what if you change enough? What if Forrest doesn't like you? What if Jan doesn't like you
0: in who you changed to be? Well, that's it on the, the my will, you know? I like You know that thing I told you I'd give you, Forrest, that little rock I have? Forget it. You're not going to get the rock. You get to hold it for a little while, but... <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, but the point is, that it, it is a real risk. And, and if you talk to long-term practitioners, they do go through periods with their family members and friends where there can be real difficulties. As we're changing, we're changing the relationship. We're changing the agreement. You know, Rick, this has been our relationship, and now I'm changing two of the terms, and I can't negotiate these with you. You know, it it gets challenging.
0: Yeah, as in the terms being suddenly now you're you're more authentic or honest or... You're less willing to kind of turn a blind eye to certain kinds of things. Yeah.
1: Well, I I had a relationship that I was in, and I realized at one point that I was idealizing the other. I was doing a lot of projection idealization. And when I had enough insight into that, I didn't need to do it anymore. And once I stopped the idealization projection, what happens? The relationship changed dramatically because that person was accustomed to it, whether they needed it or not, I can't say. But because I stopped and they were used to it, all of a sudden it's like, wait a minute, we're not the same interactive people we were, and the relationship couldn't sustain it. So, this happens too in real life. And we have to be willing to look at these things. And in a lot of ways, like playing poker, we've got to be willing to have all of our chips in. And that's ultimately how it works. And people get to that point, but it takes time because there's always things we want to hold back. Well, I, I'd like, This portion of me to be enlightened, and I'd like to really keep this the way it is because I feel really comfortable with this.
2: So, in your book, Buddha's Heart, and I'm curious about the word "heart" and the you know explicit usage of it in the title of the book. You explore what are known as the Brahma Viharas, which are these practices that are essentially designed to cultivate kind of the four key virtues of Buddhism. To translate them loosely, it's loving kindness, compassion, joy, and equanimity. They're are different people who quibble with those translations in different ways, but that's like a good summary of the four words. What drew you to these particular practices? Obviously, you have a very wide-ranging background. You've explored a lot of different kinds of states. Why these practices right now?
1: Yeah. Well, first, heart. I think heart's chosen specifically. In part, I wanted to piggyback off of Rick's book, which did very well. <laughs> So I thought <laughs> I'm going yeah. to go with I'm going to go with <laughs> Buddha's heart here. Uh, so quite, quite seriously, that was part of my thinking. But the other part was really in Buddhism when we talk about heart, we talk about mind. In Japanese, they use the word shin, and shin means heart mind. And so really, that's what we're talking about, what we're practicing with in Buddhism. But we'll talk about it as either mind or heart, but not both. And I really mean it both. That within our heart area we have a deep intelligence too and all the functioning our head can do our heart can do so really you can substitute the word authentic as well because that's really what i was hoping to help people you know develop and recognize was the authentic heart which is this shin heart this is this heart mind quality so i think it's an important practice i think even today even more i think with the stresses of today with the way people feel disconnected with each other. I think it's really important to work with these. And part of my own process has been to come back to these practices and realize that you can start with the heart practices and you can take the heart practices all the way through the important levels of the Buddhist path to a completion experience. We can call it that, which would be in some contact, sufficient contact with what I call the absolute realm or the absence realm. And within the core of that is the experience of cessation, where materiality and mentality and consciousness stop. And that means the whole path is available based on working with our heart, starting here. And it's going to improve our relationships with ourself and others, too. So it seems to me it was really an apropos way to approach this. And also with my own teaching, it's sort of come full circle where this is the way I want to move into the world and what I want to support people in mm. in doing.
2: That's lovely. Perhaps at the beginning of that path, as I suspect many of the people listening are somewhere between the beginning and the middle of it. What are some of the practices that you teach or that you sort of nudge people toward that help them start to cultivate some of these key virtues?
1: Well, like right now, I'm I'm running a 12-month mentoring group. I've got 12 people from around the world. We're meeting once a month They're doing work. And I started the group off doing what's in the book called Innate Goodness Meditation, which is really getting in contact with your innate goodness, the goodness that's not conditioned. It's not dependent upon your behavior. It's not dependent on anybody else approving you. But it's that quality in you that you might see in a newborn baby or in a newborn dog or pet. It's just that goodness that radiates from their beingness. So learning to make contact with that is really essential because it counteracts a lot of the story we tell about ourselves in terms of value, in terms of worthlessness, and it also helps fill in those places where we feel hopeless and helpless in the times we do. So it can really help us in a real tangible way in our life. And then also the goodness, because it's a quality of our deeper nature or what we call our true nature in Buddhism. We're making direct contact with the source by being in contact with this innate goodness because it's a beingness, again, not a doingness. So a combination of the innate goodness meditation and the other is is gratitude practice. I have them one day a week write down five people from their life who they're grateful for and why, and I have them let the gratitude come out of the innate goodness practice. So let it arise and it doesn't have to be anybody who's in your life. So it could be somebody who was very transitory. And it's been really interesting watching their process of identifying sometimes people they didn't even know their name, but somebody did something. They recommended them for a job. They gave them directions in a foreign city, but it opened to some other experience they wouldn't have had. So it's been really interesting watching those. But I think those both anyone can do. Those are not hard to do. And if you did just that, your life would improve and would continue to improve. If you did, again, nothing else, just tried to live from that, of course, too, because people are seeing it socially where they're now interacting with others and the innate goodness is part of that field when they connect with others. So it's hard to really stay petty with someone else when you're feeling this shared innate goodness that you both reside in and as who you are.
0: In that sense of innate goodness is obviously, of course, a beautiful and powerful antidote to the feeling so many people have of innate worthlessness or brokenness or taintedness or damagedness or lessness than others. I've been touched myself with that practice of innate goodness. Similarly, gratitude, such a wonderful antidote to feelings of discontent.
1: Well, also envy, which is a huge issue.
0: Wonderful, and envy, especially these days of social comparison on steroids. I know we want to talk with you about some major self-transcendent experiences you've had, but if we could just a bit further, could you add a couple more practical practices in the Buddhist heart territory, maybe related to kindness, compassion, friendliness, love, whatever you like?
1: Sure. Part of the way I present the Brahma Vihara's is I present them a little backwards from the way it's normally taught. They're normally taught loving kindness, empathetic joy, compassion, then equanimity. I start with equanimity because I think if you work from that as a foundation, understanding the functioning of karma and the fact that we're all living out our own karma, there's a way that it lets land a deep acceptance for what's happening and what is. And it gives us a better relationship with suffering. We understand it isn't arbitrary. It's not punitive. It's just the unfolding of everyone's karma in this sort of complex mathematical equation that's being processed. So you have that, and then you build on that compassion. And I teach compassion not as something that's going to eliminate suffering, because life is suffering. There is suffering in human life. But the compassion is, how do you hold it? How do you be with the suffering? How do you support Because I think, you know, Rick, you and Forrest and I could all identify key moments in our lives where we really learned some important lesson. And almost always, it was a time when we ran headfirst into the brick wall and nobody stopped us. Because if they stopped us, we had a much more narrow experience or learning possibility. So again, it's not taking away suffering. It's supporting someone being right where they are. And that's important. And then the last thing I'll say is, I think the other thing I've included in the book, which I think is really critical, is forgiveness practice. I think to really sincerely work through forgiving ourselves and forgiving others is just incredibly important because there's so much we maintain as contractions in places we maintain anger, hatred, self-judgment, disenfranchisement, and all the different ways we can do it. And this can help let go and loosen that so we have more fluidity and more room for the other qualities of love, etc.
0: Thank you.
2: Referring to these different qualities that you've named so far, qualities of love or equanimity or whatever it might be, and then bringing in something else you were saying earlier, where you were talking about contact with source or a feeling of...
0: The absolute.
2: The absolute was another one that came in. The absence. Are these yeah. qualities that for you are present or were present when you've had transcendent experiences or otherwise experiences of kind of egolessness or self-transcendence? They
1: can be. Hmm. What you've mentioned, the different heart qualities that we've talked about, the reason it's a little confusing is because these are both emotional qualities and also their transcendent qualities, meaning yeah. your deeper nature has these qualities inherently in it. So what I'm doing is starting, you start with the human, the emotion, and then you sort of, in Zen we used to call it the backward step. You take the backward step to where you start making contact with the transcendent quality of that, with the true nature quality of love, of compassion. So you get to where, and also by doing that, you're resting in your deeper nature, you're resting in the source. And the more you start resting in these different qualities, the more they start not only arising, but connecting. Mm. And so these can then get to where if if you're sort of take the backward step enough with these, they'll start spontaneously arising in life. And like if I'm around you and something's going on with you and I, in my head, I'm not clear how to really meet you. I may find my true nature then kicks up compassion and I can say, oh, compassion is the right way to be here. So, I can know how to relate to you, how to connect with you, and how you need it. So, it becomes really a great way to live as well. We can learn to trust in it and be guided.
0: That's great. I think so many of us feel just uncertain, unsettled. And then you think about modern societies and external, powerful external forces that really make people feel really like they're not standing on any kind of solid ground. And I mean that in a simple sense, not getting at ultimate questions of emptiness and groundlessness. And the teaching you have here that's speaking to something that we can open into and even get a sense of what's already true, what's underneath it all, you know, about who you already are and about the way reality actually already is. can feel so deeply reassuring, easing of an anxious and contracted heart. Right. And that's part of it. Is learning to trust that
1: but it also has to be true for you and that's part of what doing the practices will do is you'll you'll begin to realize and start making contact with that so yeah it's really important and i think again it has everyday social benefits as well as it has benefit in the transcendent sense of returning home which is really what in a lot of ways we all are aching for
0: so if i could i want to make a kind of a common distinction about three different ways for the veils to drop and for people to have a sense of just sort of the underlying truth of reality, the underlying true nature, let's say. One way is this gradual process that I know well, in which it feels like there's a kind of shroud of opaque velvet hanging over you that obscures ultimate reality. And then each each day, little ways, maybe Maybe more some days more than others, you start putting little pinholes in the shroud, which let the light in. And then as time accumulates, the shroud is gauzier and foamier and increasingly insubstantial, the gradual path. Then there's times when suddenly, poof, whatever the basis is, the shroud falls away and the sense itself totally drops out, while reality, true nature shines forth with radiant perfection. Then third there's the special case of the shroud falling away in which a person's aided by substances of one kind or another entheogen psychedelics. What's your view of these three different ways to encounter the truth of things?
1: well I, I certainly subscribe to the to the first two the the drug one I don't really have a lot of knowledge about or experience of and I my consideration would be that, Because it's conditional, it's dependent, Mm -hmm. that I don't know how much that's going to cloud perception. So I just can't say. And the other thing I'll say too is that we need to be, I mentioned this before, we need to be ripe before that veil is removed. Mm. If it's removed too prematurely, there can be damage. Yeah. And so that's part of what I worry about with folks doing drugs to have transcendent experience is. They may or may not be psychologically ready to have the self put down. Mm-hmm. And in the, Zen, in the Zen world, we talked a lot about the sudden awakening and the gradual illumination as those being interdependent.
0: Right.
1: But there are people absolutely who their path unfolds in the gradual development. They don't have the sudden awakenings. They don't. They haven't yet. And other people will have a number of sudden awakenings and have the gradual cultivation. You must you must have the gradual cultivation, which is really living your life as authentically as you can, you know, walking your talk. That to me is really the important part of practice, the embodiment and the living from your experience. Your outside needs to match your inside is how I view it. I'm in agreement with you on that
0: for certain. My friend Samuel Bonder has this lovely phrase that we need to wake down, not just wake up.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, the main lesson with the first awakening you're referring to is really that experience where the self is transparent. So whatever way that you mark yourself, I look this way, I think this way, I like these foods, I like this person, I do this work, all of that gets dropped. So there's a kind of revealing that we're doing. And also we realize we're fully conscious and aware. We're not unconscious. And it's very pleasurable. You know, one can have an experience where the self drops, what I call absence of self. And I don't call it a full, what we say in Buddhism is a no self experience, unless the unity, unless the heart part comes in too. Everything is one and undivided. Every wave's part of the ocean. When that's present too, then to me, that's the awakening. Otherwise, it's just an absence of self. The self drops. I'm okay, you know nothing bad happened and then the self will reform. And after most awakenings the self begins to reform, but it doesn't quite fit as tightly as it used to. It's just a little bit off. And as I mentioned earlier to both your questions that whenever there's there's a deep experience like that and there's a re-reaffirmation of the self, life will present whatever psychological and life issues need to be worked on for there to be a harmony between your experience and your life. And if you're paying attention, and if you're using your life as material, then you can work with it and more clearly walk your talk.
2: I think that's a great reflection, Stephen, and actually really a wonderful note for us to kind of bring our conversation together to a close on that idea of the integration of the heart into the experience, and the ways in which there are always opportunities, even in profound moments of practice, however you want to refer to it, to see the parts that you're missing or the things that you can continue to develop on or learn from or learn with. I know I've learned a lot from this conversation, so thanks so much for taking the time to do this today.
1: Oh, my pleasure. It was very fun to hang out with you guys.
0: And really appreciating your emphasis on walking the talk, including the the moral, heartfelt dimensions of the talk.
1: Well, that's a lot, a lot of what you're teaching is is really giving people the knowledge and the technique on how to walk your talk wherever you are walking your
0: talk i think of a lot of the value of methods that are grounded within the natural frame of ordinary reality psychological methods and neurobiologically informed methods as helping with this process of gradual cultivation gradually you know putting those pinholes if you will or shifting my metaphor here you know gradually clearing away the dust the cobwebs and even some of the heavy mud on the stained glass windows of the mind so that the light that was always already out there can shine through more readily psychological neurological methods can't create that light to your point earlier but they can help us in very real ways grounded in reality our nature is embedded in nature And taking nature into account and its causes and conditions, we can gradually become more available to what arguably actually transcends nature. Right. It's prior to nature. Beautifully
2: said. So today we had the pleasure of speaking with Stephen Snyder. We began with Stephen's personal journey of practice alongside his professional practice as a lawyer. One of the lessons that he took from working as a lawyer to a variety of contemplatives was that, well, very awakened people can behave badly too. Just because somebody has a great deal of spiritual development doesn't mean that the realization that they've had is fully integrated into all of their behavior out in the world. And there is, for many people, a kind of contrast between their contemplative self or their spiritual self and how they actually live their lives. And one of the opportunities that practice gives us is to see how our behavior may not be consistent with our deeper, more core values. We then talked for a while about practice out in the world and how people can bring together contemplative practice with living a relatively normal life. This included a lot of discussion of the nature of the self and the contrast between the psychologically constructed sense of I am versus not-self as it's taught in Buddhism. Stephen used a metaphor of each of us as a single wave that's part of a much greater ocean including how we're the whole ocean just as much as we're any one wave. Alongside this, a fixation on the fact that we're the wave can sometimes get in the way of our perception of the whole ocean. Stephen spoke really eloquently about the value of contemplative practice and even some fairly esoteric states of consciousness out in the world. Some people just feel called to contemplative practice, and pursuing it is a manifestation of their deep authenticity while for other people, they're much more interested because of the very real benefits it can provide in terms of increasing happiness or relaxing some of the negative forms of attachment and clinging, which then reduce some of the suffering attached to those experiences. Alongside this are the practices offered in Stephen's book, Buddha's Heart, which focuses on the development of four key virtues, loving kindness, compassion, empathic joy, and equanimity. Stephen particularly highlighted equanimity as a foundational practice. We then closed by talking about self-transcendent experiences, the value of them and the different ways that people can arrive into them, how they can allow for some people a glimpse at our true nature, and the ways that it's possible for us to be in the world. This includes a relaxation of the egoic sense of self. How sometimes we have these moments where we just sort of realize how constructed the whole thing is. And once we have that experience, for some people, the puzzle pieces never quite fit as snugly as they may have before. This can be disorienting or feel uncomfortable, but it's really a natural process of development, a way for us to realize the way that the world actually is as opposed to the way that we perceive it to be. So I hope that you enjoyed today's conversation with Stephen. I know that I learned a lot from it personally, and there's plenty that I'm going to be taking out of it. And I really like having these conversations with people with a deep contemplative practice sometimes, as it really stirs a different part of my brain than the part that's kind of stimulated by the more psychologically focused conversation that we have most of the time. If you've been enjoying the podcast, we'd really appreciate it if you would remember to subscribe to it through the platform of your choice, and maybe even leave a rating and a positive review. It really does help us out. Also, as a reminder, I have a new YouTube channel. I recently posted a new video to the channel, and you can find me at youtube.com slash Forrest Hansen. If you like the content we explore here, you will probably enjoy my channel as well. I explore some similar topics, and it's great if you're a more visual learner. Also, you can find us on Patreon if you'd like to support the show there. It's patreon.com slash beingwellpodcast. And for the cost of just a couple cups of coffee a month, you could have access to a bunch of bonus content, including elaborate show notes that I prepare for every episode. And hey, if it feels right to you, you can always tell a friend about the show. It's one of the best ways we have to reach new people. So until next time, thanks for listening, and we'll talk to you soon.